Philippians chapter 3. We've just completed a very doctrinal, very powerful doctrinal section of the book of Romans in this third chapter. The, the six verses that we covered in the last two weeks declared the theological basis for the doctrine of justification by faith. And, and we spent a couple of weeks there. We had a good time there. As a matter of fact, it was in the teaching on those lessons that Sabrina received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen. With the evidence of speaking in tongues, just like in the book of Acts. We married, had the privilege yesterday of conducting the, the wedding ceremony. Her and Jonathan are married now. They're off on their honeymoon. They'll be back uh, next Sunday. I believe God is doing a wonderful thing in that family. Amen. And I'm excited about it, not just because he's my brother, not just because he's been a long time away from the house of God, but simply because there's a there's a, a group of people, a family there, amen, that have, haven't have known what it is to walk in the blessings and the goodness of God. And, it, and, and Sabrina is discovering for herself for the very first time in her life what it means to walk with him. It's an exciting thing, amen? Amen. So... Having spent some time there, we come now to the, the conclusion of Romans chapter 3. We're going to read together the last uh, five verses of Romans chapter 3. And what we're going to see here is that Paul is going to make, he's going to draw three conclusions from the, the doctrine that's already been laid out. He's going to draw three conclusions as we make the transition to chapter 4. So uh, these final five verses this morning, we're looking at, three conclusions that Paul draws from the doctrine that he's already stated. It begins in verse 27. If you have it, would you say amen? It says, where is boasting then? Is it excluded? Uh, I'm sorry, it is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith Without the deeds of the law, is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. That's the passage that we're going to deal with this morning, beginning with verse 27, which said again, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. So the first conclusion that Paul makes is that the doctrine of justification by faith excludes boasting. Now the word law here means a principle. It doesn't necessarily refer to the Old Testament law. It refers to principles. And man's salvation is based on the principle of faith, not the principle of works. So because it's based on the principle of faith and not the principle of works, a man can't boast in his salvation. Our salvation is, is not based on the works that we do. It's based on the work of the one in whom we've placed our faith. Our salvation comes by believing, not by achieving. Can I get an Amen. So when Paul says that boasting is excluded, he literally means that boasting is completely shut out. 
We glory in ourselves because of what we've done. We glory in our accomplishments. We can boast of things that we have accomplished, but our salvation is not our own accomplishment. We can't boast of it because we didn't cause it. We didn't do anything to merit it. We didn't earn it. It's not based on anything that we have done. We're saved by the principle of faith in harmony with God's love and God's grace. Verse 28 says, Therefore, we conclude, that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, the word conclude means to reckon. It doesn't mean that Paul has reached a new conclusion here. Paul does not at any point in the book of Romans present justification by faith as a new conclusion. This is not a new doctrine. He presents faith as the means by which salvation has always worked. This is the means by which God has always saved his people. And here his point is to demonstrate that because of faith's role in salvation, the conclusion is that boasting is excluded. Because of, of faith's role in salvation, a man can't boast in his salvation. Now, verse 28 restates verse 21 and does it, in very clear terms. And that's important because verse 21 is really the core of the doctrine of justification by faith. And here it's restate, restated in, in, in a very clear and easy to understand way. God counts us righteous because of our faith in him. Not because of our good works or our strict adherence to his law. We're justified without the deeds of the law. We're justified apart from the deeds of the law. We don't earn our salvation in any way. We cannot earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to make us good enough to deserve salvation. There's nothing that we can do to elevate us to the level that we could earn salvation. God does not reward our good works or our holiness, or our righteous living by granting us salvation. Now, I want to be clear about this. We don't live holy in order to be saved. We don't live righteous in order to be saved. We live holy because we are saved. We live righteous because we are saved. We do not produce works in our lives to earn salvation. We produce works in our lives as a result of the fact that we have been saved. We don't get good enough to get God. We get God enough to get good. We don't put on righteousness to earn the salvation of God. We don't put on righteousness to earn the favor of God. We put on righteousness because we've been saved by God. We put on righteousness because we're walking in the favor of God. We're saved by faith apart from deeds. And as long as we continue to walk in faith, then we have the assurance of salvation. The works of faith are that continual walking in faith. Amen. Now, what, what Paul is not implying here is he's not implying that we can live disobediently to Scripture 
and still be saved. He, this doesn't mean that you can live any way you want to live and still be saved. This doesn't mean that the fruit that you bear in your life, that the works that you produce in your life do not matter. It means that conformity to the law is not the grounds of salvation. That does not mean that saving faith will not produce obedience to God's word. That does not mean that saving faith will not lead to a life that lines up with the principles of God's word. In fact, a failure to obey the word of God or a failure to manifest good works in your life, or a failure to produce good fruit in your life signifies a fundamental lack of faith. Faith is going to produce good fruit. Faith is going to produce obedience. Faith is going to produce a life that adheres to and lines up to and lives according to the principles of the Word of God. We're saved by our faith apart from our works. But our works are produced by that saving faith. Can I get an amen? So faith will always result in obedience. Justification will always produce holy living. We are justified by faith. But the kind of faith that produces justification is never alone. It produces fruit. It produces a life. It results in a life that reflects the product of faith. So in verse 29, he says, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? And then he answers himself, Yes, of the Gentiles also. The second conclusion that Paul draws is that justification by faith is for everybody. It's for all of mankind. Since God is God, both of the Jews and of the Gentiles, the way of salvation cannot belong just to the Jews. Since God is the God of both, then salvation has to be available to both. In order to reinforce that point, Paul reaches back to the most fundamental truth about God that is ever expressed in Scripture. And he uses it to underscore this point. In verse 30, he says, Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Now, what he's doing, Paul is alluding, like I said, to the very fundamental creed of Judaism, to the very fundamental understanding of who God is, the most important attribute of God in all of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. And that's Paul's proof text for the fact that there's only one way of salvation. It just makes sense to Paul and it made sense to Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life no man cometh to the Father any other way but by me. If there's only one God, there's only one way to get to him. If there's only one God, there's only one way of salvation. And so what Paul says, we can know that, that salvation can't just be for the Jews and, and not be for the Gentiles. Or maybe if somehow the Jews have a different way than the Gentiles and there's more than one way to get to God, he says, that's not even biblical. There's only one God. 
And there's only one way to get to God. That's the basis of his argument. The point here is that the law was exclusive. The law was given to the Jews, not the Gentiles. And if the law was the means by which a man earns his salvation, then the Gentiles couldn't have been saved because the Gentiles were excluded from the law. And if the Gentiles were going to be saved, if the Jews were going to be saved by the law, then the Gentiles would have needed another way to be saved. And Paul said God's only, there's only one God, and there's only one way to get to God. And since God is one, and there's only one way to be saved, then the law can't be the thing that saved you because the law was just to the Jews. It wasn't to the Gentiles. If the law was what saved us, you and I can't be saved. And Paul says there's only one God, there's only one way to get to God, and that way is faith. It's always been faith. Salvation by faith. That's how the law works. That's how the Gentile gets saved. All of us are saved by faith. Now, verse 31 says, and just hold on. I know I'm right through that text just like that, but we're not anywhere near done, so don't start packing your stuff. Amen. Verse 31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. The third conclusion that Paul draws is that justification by faith establishes the law. Justification by faith. Listen, this does not invalidate the law, but rather it upholds and fulfills the law. The most common misconception about justification by faith is that it invalidates all works and makes, it any, makes any kind of works in our life unnecessary. The most common misconception about justification by faith is that faith exists in, in, in some world all by itself alone and is completely divorced from any kind of works. And what Paul does here in verse 31 is he emphatically answers that misconception. He forcefully states that justification by faith shows the true purpose of the law and depends upon the law for its validity. Man needs to be justified because the law has condemned him. Christ's death is necessary only if the law has first required the death penalty. By teaching the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice and the necessity of justification by faith in Jesus Christ, what Paul is doing is he's endorsing the validity of the law. The point of verse 31 is that just because the law is rejected as a means of salvation doesn't mean that the principles in the law are rejected as a moral standard for living. Let me say that again. What Paul is saying in verse 31 is that just because the law is rejected as a means of salvation does not mean that the principles contained within that law are rejected 
as a moral standard for living. The law said, do not kill. Not killing doesn't save me. That doesn't mean it's okay for me to kill. Does that make sense? The word law in this context, verse 31, can mean a lot of different things. The word is used sometimes to refer to all of the books of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, that period of time that was under the law. And if that's how you view the law, if that's how we view the law in this sense, then the statement is validated by the fact that the Old Testament teaches justification by faith. Chapter 4, where we're going next, we're going to look at the life of Abraham. We're going to see that the Old Testament teaches what Paul is teaching here. This isn't a new conclusion. This isn't a new doctrine. This is, this is built on the foundation of the law and the prophets. So the statement that the, this justification by faith that, that it establishes the law. If the law is the Old Testament, we're going we're gonna to go there next. We're going to build the fact that this is based on the Old Testament. However, the reference to the law could be to the law itself, to the 630-some-odd commandments that God gave to the Hebrews by which they would live their life. Students of the Old Testament subdivide that law into two classes. There's ceremonial law and there's moral law. And some things that God required of the Hebrew people were ceremonial. Ceremonial law was a part of the practice of their religion. Ceremonial law had to do with the dietary laws. It had to do with the offering of the sacrifices. It was things that were ceremonial that were a part of their faith. If by law Paul is referring to the ceremonial law, then that statement is validated by the fact that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the demands of ceremonial law quite literally at the cross. He became the lamb. He was crucified. His blood was shed for our sins. He became our high priest. He carried his own blood and placed it upon the mercy seat. He became our propitiation. We learned that last week. He became our mercy seat. He fulfilled quite literally all the demands of ceremonial law. And we fulfill all of the types that are represented by ceremonial law in spiritual living, in living through faith in Jesus Christ. Spiritually, we fulfill ceremonial law. Come out from among them. Be separate. The ceremony law was all about separation. It was all about we fulfill that in the life we live spiritually, the ceremonial law. Now, if Paul was talking about the moral law, some parts of the, the law reflect the moral code of God. They reflect the, the standard of God for morality that doesn't change. The, the law prohibited murder, I've already said. That's not ceremonial. That's moral. That doesn't change. It reflects God's moral nature. And if the view of the law here is the view of moral law, then we fulfill it by walking after the Spirit of God. We live according to the moral law of God by the power of the Holy Ghost after we've been justified by faith. We're not divorced from the, the necessity to live according to God's moral law. Just because I'm saved by my faith doesn't make it okay for me to murder. Just because I'm saved by my faith, apart from my works, doesn't make it okay for me to be an adulterer. That's God's moral law. 
It doesn't make it okay for me to covet that which isn't mine. That's God's moral law. There are certain things contained in the law, in the Levitical law, that reflect the moral nature of God. Just because I'm saved by faith apart from my works doesn't mean that none of that none of those moral principles apply to me anymore. I'm still bound to live by the moral principle of the law of God. And that is fulfilled in the life that you live after you're saved. You're not saved because listen. It's wrong to murder. I may, have, I may have already used this example. I'm going to use it again. It's wrong to murder, right? I've never murdered anybody. Does that mean I'm saved? Not murdering somebody didn't save me. But I'm saved by my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm saved by my obedience to the Word of God. Now, now that I'm saved, I'm still not a murderer. Does that mean I'm okay now to go murder somebody? Because I wasn't saved by not being a murderer. See, even though I'm saved, I'm still there. There's still the moral law of God. There's still the principles of that law that apply to my life. I still live according to Scripture. I still live in obedience to the Word of God. It still matters what you do. It still matters how you live. That's the principle. It establishes the very law of God. No matter how you view the law, if you want to view the law as the whole of the Old Testament, if you want to view the law as ceremonial law, if you want to view the law as the moral law, it doesn't matter how you want to divide it up or how you want to look at it or how you want to view the law. The law is validated by justification by faith, not rejected. That's the point. No matter how you look at it, the doctrine of justification by faith validates the law of God. Now, that doctrine has been widely misrepresented. People have seized on the words of Paul, especially here in chapter 3, to proclaim that since salvation doesn't depend on our works, then it is not necessary for salvation to produce any kind of works. I want to tell you very plainly, Nothing could be further from the truth. I believe it's very important at this point, at this juncture in our study of the book of Romans, to explain clearly what saving faith is in the New Testament. Because of that, I'm through the text that I want to cover this morning. We're going to spend the rest of this morning just talking about saving faith. I want to establish several key concepts relative to saving faith. First of all, the book of Romans is written to the church. It's important to understand the purpose of this letter. This is written to baptized, spirit-filled believers. It is written to explain the basis of their salvation. It was not written to unbelievers to convert them. It's not a different message being preached in Romans than Peter preached in Acts. You've got to understand that. There are people that will tell you right up, well, Peter just had a partial revelation in Acts. But by the time we get to Romans, Paul has developed a fuller understanding of salvation. That's a bunch of hogwash, my friend. 
The Bible isn't contradictory and it doesn't develop. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his, his, the principle of salvation that he imparted to his followers, to his closest disciples, that when he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom and told him, you can open up the door. Amen. This is the power that I've given to you. When Peter stood on that balcony that day uh, in the book of Acts in the second chapter on the day of Pentecost and he preached the gospel. That gospel wasn't in a state of evolution. It wasn't in a state of growing. There wasn't a more a fuller understanding that was going to come along somewhere later on in the New Testament. Paul's not introducing new doctrine. He is explaining how the doctrine works. He's explaining how we're saved. There's no need for Paul to tell Roman Christians how to be born again, they've already been born again. We stated from the very beginning, lesson number one, he's writing this to believers in Rome. Where did the church in Rome originate? We said it probably originated on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood on a balcony and preached, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. The message of salvation didn't change. They already knew how to be born again. They had already received the gospel that was taught by Peter and by Paul and by James and by John. They didn't need Acts 2.38 to be explained to them. But they did need to know the doctrinal significance of what happened to them when they repented of their sins were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Listen, this is why. There was a very real threat that they would return to Jewish legalism after having been saved. It was a very real problem in the first century church that born-again believers tried to create a hybrid religion that married the old covenant to the new covenant. They called them the Judaizers. They, they tried to create a religion that, that got the tenets of Old Testament faith and, and Old Testament belief and married them together with the tenets of New Testament belief. And what Paul is trying to do is let these readers understand a real threat exists that after having been saved by the grace of God that you go back to the law. You need to understand the law didn't save you. That's been twisted and perverted to say it doesn't matter how you live. That's not what, what Paul is saying. But what he's saying is, very emphatically, you need to understand the law wasn't what saved you. The law wasn't what set you free. You've been saved by faith. You've been saved by the grace of God. And Paul is trying to establish for these believers, first of all, how they're saved. Under both covenants. You were saved by faith under the oak, and the law couldn't save you there either. It was your faithful obedience to the law that saved you under the old covenant, and it's the same way you're saved under the new covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ has created a way to come into the presence of God. There's no longer a need for the sacrificial system. He is the heaven's only perfect lamb. He is the fulfillment of all of the law, and you're still saved the same way. By faithful obedience. Secondly, he wants them to understand 
how salvation will impact their life going forward. We're in chapter 3. We're going to get into chapters later on that deal with righteous living. A lot of doctrine is built on chapter 3 that says righteous living isn't important. To do that, you've got to neglect the rest of the book because we're going to get into whole chapters that talk about how you ought to live after you've been saved. So these believers had already been born again through faith. And to continue in salvation, they needed to continue their walk by faith, not revert back to Jewish legalism. And Paul needed to emphasize the fact that New Testament salvation stands apart from Judaism. It stands apart from Old Testament law. The works of the law didn't save them. They were saved by grace through faith. The works that salvation produces in their life will not be the works of the law. It'll be the works of faith. That doesn't mean there won't be works. It means the works that are produced in life will be the works of faith, not the works of the law. Secondly, the faith, biblical faith, means more than just mental assent or intellectual acceptance. Faith includes trust, reliance, commitment and obedience now I'm going to quote a couple of sources I'm going to, uh, these are very uh, reputable dictionaries and lexicons that I'm about to quote that are used by biblical scholars regardless of their faith this is an apostolic source this is just a very reputable source Thayer's Greek English lexicon of the New Testament says that the Greek word for to believe that we use for faith refers to the faith by which a man embraces Jesus and is combined with obedience to Jesus. That's faith. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says that there are three main elements of faith in relation to God. They are one, a firm conviction, two, a personal surrender, and three, the conduct that is inspired by such surrender. Faith and obedience. Both of those definitions of biblical faith stand in opposition to the idea that belief is merely a mental exercise, that it is purely something that happens in your mind, that it consists of a good opinion without producing any evidence. Saving faith, biblical faith, includes appropriation or application as well as acceptance. It's not enough just to accept it if you don't apply it. It's not enough just to believe it if you don't obey it. Faith cannot be separated from obedience. There's a whole host of scripture to back up what I'm saying. I don't have the time this morning to quote every passage of Scripture that establishes that obedience to the Word of God is absolutely necessary to salvation. I'm going to quote one. Faith is alive only through response, commitment, and action. It takes all three, just like the dictionary said. Reading from James chapter 2. I'm going to read a lengthy passage. I'm going to start with verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14 says... What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? 
can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? They come to you, they're poor, destitute, and they're hungry, and you say, Have a nice day. And you don't give them food and warmth, and what, what good did you do them? Even so, he says, if it hath not works, even so, I'm sorry, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. You can say you believe all you want to say it, but it's not enough just to wish somebody well when they're starving to death. You've got to do something about it. It's not enough just to wish they were warm when they're freezing to death. You, you don't really believe they're, they're freezing to death if you just say, well, I wish you'd start feeling better. You go get a blanket and you put it around them. And James said, by the same token, then, faith, if it doesn't produce works, is dead. It's empty. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there's one God. It's funny how that keeps popping up. It was the, it, at the foundation of New Testament faith. There's only one God. Thou believest that there is... I threw that in for free, by the way. Thou believest that there is one God, and thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his... Watch this. Faith wrought or worked with his works. It was all combined together. And by works was faith made perfect. And scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead. This is the linchpin. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You're not saved by your works. You're saved by your faith. Neither are you saved by faith that doesn't produce works. Because faith that doesn't produce works isn't faith at all. That's what James said. It is possible then, listen closely, it is possible then to have an initial degree of faith in Christ Perhaps to accept that he is your only hope for salvation and still not be saved if there is not complete acceptance, commitment, and obedience. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the only way, and you don't do anything about that belief, then you haven't crossed the threshold to faith. That's what the Bible says. Faith that does not produce works is dead being alone can I get an amen so faith is more than just mental assent let me go to another well reputed well known well read 
not an apostolic. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably one of the most impressive figures in in recent religious history. I'm not going to take the time to give Dietrich Bonhoeffer's bi biography. He was uh, arrested by the Nazis. He was killed. Spent time in concentration camp, killed by the Nazis because he refused to acquiesce to the way that Nazi Germany was going and refused to surrender his faith. He wrote very, very, very moving books about faith. And he has a book that is probably, if you've never read it, probably the most life-changing book you'll ever pick up and read. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And I want to quote for just a few moments from that book. Bonhoeffer wrote against what he called the heresy of cheap grace. This is his words. He said, in that heresy, intellectual assent is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. And that amounts to justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin. What he says, the doctrine that you can live any way you want to live and just have mental faith that Jesus is your Lord and you're saved and you continue in your sin, he said that amounts to justification of sin, not justification of the sinner. Because for the sinner to be justified, he's got to depart from sin. He's got to leave it. He's got to make a change. There has to be something real that happens in his life. Monhoffer pointed out Jesus did not ask for just a mental decision or a verbal commitment from his disciples, but he asked for actual obedience. He said, follow me. Not believe that I'm the Messiah. Follow me. Commit yourself. Come, walk with me. Come, go. There has to be some action. There has to be something that happens. Bonhoeffer stressed the necessity of obedience. He said, and I quote, The response of the disciple is an act of obedience, not a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. For faith is only real when there is obedience and never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. The step of obedience must be taken before faith can be possible unless he obeys, a man cannot believe, end quote. The best way that I can think of to explain the obedience of faith is to use this analogy. If you'll bear with me, I'm going to use a personal illustration. A few years ago, I had an episode with my heart and I, I told my doctor what had occurred and my doctor referred me to a cardiologist who tested me thoroughly. At that time, this has been several years ago, at that time, my heart muscle, because of an inadequacy in my lungs and because of a poor exchange of oxygen, my heart muscle was performing at a dangerously low level. In my mid-30s, I was exhibiting the signs and symptoms of congestive heart failure. That's a scary thing. The cardiologist told me, said, you need to take this medicine. If you take this medicine, it'll strengthen your heart. It'll make it pump harder. It'll give it a more intensity and more force. 
cause it to pump better. When he handed me that medicine, Brother Bowen, I had a choice to make. I had a problem, and that problem had been fully diagnosed. The doctor understood what the problem was and what was causing it, and the doctor, who was the authority on the problem, gave me a solution. If at that point I choose to say, I believe the doctor, but I'm not going to take the medicine, then I don't really believe the situation is as serious as the doctor said it is. If I say, because I'm going to tell you the truth, I won't live. I'm not interested in, in, in dying at the age of 40. Amen? And so if I say, I believe the doctor that if I don't take this medicine, I'm going to die before I celebrate my 40th birthday, then, then I'm going to do something about it, and I'm going to act on what I say I believe. If I don't take the medicine, then I don't really believe the doctor. You see, I have to acknowledge how bad my condition is, and I have to put my trust in the doctor. I have to believe that he wants to make me better. I have to believe that he's given me the right medicine. That's faith. And it produces obedience. I take the pill. I hate taking those pills. I take a small handful of them. I take them every single day because I believe in the doctor's word. And I have confidence in that medicine that, that I don't fully understand how it works. I don't fully understand what it's doing. But I act out my faith by obeying. Two years later, the same doctor ran the same tests on me again. And my condition had dramatically improved. Now, do I still have problems? Sure. Do I still take a boatload of medicine? Yeah. But in my most recent battery of tests, my heart was performing at that borderline just above congestive heart failure in the low normal range, which is a significant, a, a very significant improvement. The medicine is doing what the medicine's supposed to do. If I'd help it out a little bit by losing a little weight and some of the, it'd do even better. This is where I, this is more than just a personal story. The same is true with righteous living. Holiness isn't legalism. Righteous living isn't legalism. Righteous living is the exercise of my faith in God. There was a condition diagnosed in my soul. I'm a sinner, and I need to be saved. I'm a sinner, and I can't save myself. And recognizing how truly lost in sin I am, I, took a, I have to look away from myself. I've got to look away from what I can do. I've got to look away from my works, and I've got to look to Jesus Christ, uh, and I've got to put my faith in Him, and I've got to put my confidence in Him, and I've got to let Him diagnose the condition of my soul, and then guess what I've got to do? I've got to obey His Word. I've got to do what he told me to do. If I don't obey, then I don't believe. That's the obedience of faith. My faith saves me, but my faith is inseparably linked to my obedience.
because I believe in Jesus, because I have faith in his word, because I believe he is my Lord and my Savior, I obey the word of God. I live a life of obedience to his word. Justification by faith does not mean mental acceptance instead of obedience. Nor does it mean believing instead of doing. What it means is pleading the merits of Jesus Christ instead of our own merits. Pleading the blood of Jesus instead of our own words. It means believing Jesus, which means believing his word, which means accepting and obeying his word. Faithful obedience doesn't earn salvation. It doesn't merit salvation. It doesn't make me good enough to be saved. But the Old Testament bears out a simple truth. God doesn't save without obedience. He told Noah to build an ark. I'm going to flood the whole world. I'm going to save you and your family. Build a boat. Anybody want to venture a guess what happens if, if, if Noah doesn't build a boat? He and his family are saved, not just by his faith, but by the obedience of his faith. He built the boat. And because he built the boat, he was saved. And his family was saved with him. Noah was justified by obedient faith. Hebrews tells us that by faith, Noah built the ark and saved his household by faith. That's how he became, according to the writer of Hebrews, an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. He built the boat. His obedience was an integral part of his faith. He could not have been saved without his obedience. Amen? Amen. I, I have a couple more points I'd like to make about saving faith, but I think I'm going to stop. I feel like the Spirit of God is moving. I want to listen. Let me say one more thing. Acts 2.38. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repentance, water baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost are not the works of man. They are the work of God. They are the result of obedient faith. I believe that if I repent of my sins, he's going to forgive me and set me free from a sin's hold. So I repent. I believe that if I'm baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of my sins, he's going to wash away a lifetime of sin. I believe that if I surrender my life to him, he's going to fill me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. God is the one who does the work. God is the one who remits sin, who, who breaks the hold of sin. God's the one who washes away sin stain. God is the one who fills me with his spirit. It's not my work. It's his. But I do my part. preacher preaches 
conviction strikes my heart. The great physician diagnoses my sickness. I am a sinner. There is no hope except in the blood of Jesus Christ. And seizing on that hope, my faith responds with obedience. And I find my way to an altar and I repent of my sins. That's how faith works. You're not saved by being good. You're saved by faith. And faith responds with obedience. And you repent of your sins. And even though you haven't been good, He washes your sin away. When you go to the water of baptism, it's not just for your sins, it's for that curse of sin that you carry, that the lineage of Adam carries. You only need to be baptized one time for as long as you live. Amen. It washes away your sins. It washes away that curse of sin. And from then on, you have an advocate with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. You can repent a hundred thousand times. You can repent a hundred times in a day if you need to. I, I, I beg you to if you need to. Repentance is about getting that blood to flow into my life and cover my sin. But baptism is about remission. It's about washing away the stain and the curse. I go to that tank because I believe that he's going to set me free. I'm going to rise. I'm buried with him because if I'm buried with him in baptism, I'm going to rise with him in new life. And I'm going to come out of that water to live a brand new life in Jesus Christ. And he's going to fill me with his spirit. Only those who believe repent. Only those who believe are baptized. And only those who believe are filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. There is no other qualification than faith. Would you stand with me? Our attempts to save ourselves would never get us anywhere. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again for our salvation. Our response to that gospel is to repent, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost just like they did in the book of Acts. Faith in Christ, faith in what Jesus did, finds its expression in obedience to Acts chapter 2, in obedience to what Peter preached through baptism, through repentance, through baptism, through the infilling of the Holy Ghost. A believer is born again of water and of spirit, just like Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. He, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again of water and of spirit. That's what happens both in the water and the baptism of the Holy Ghost.